Lord, we ask that you would grant us wisdom from the text of your word. Deepen us in our understanding of the revelation that you've given about who you are and the way in which we are to walk in fellowship with you and one another through this life. We pray for help and aid. I ask that you would help us to attack those thoughts right now, perhaps, that are drawing us away from concentration upon your word. I ask that you would help us to set aside what is painful and what is distracting and what is alluring. And I pray that we would focus upon what you have revealed from the life of Elijah and what it teaches us today as we seek to know your mind pray that we would set these distractions aside and be able to concentrate upon your truth. We thank you for it. We receive it as a gift and pray that the Spirit of God would now teach us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. What discourages you most deeply and most often? What is it that brings you to the brink of despair? That most vexes your soul. You know those moments when your heart feels like 400 pounds? Tears may well up in your eyes. Your soul is wearied. What is it that brings you to that point where you pray, Lord, I've seen enough. Lord, I've had enough. Just take me home. Deliver me from this painful world. How you answer such questions reveals much about who you are and about the state of your soul, of your relationship with the Lord. I plan to return to that consideration later here this morning, but for now it ushers us into this narrative in 1 Kings chapter 19. Dale Ralph Davis has expended much energy seeking to understand this passage and he draws two conclusions. First of all, this is one of the most important narratives in the Old Testament. That's saying something. Second, this is one of the most widely misinterpreted passages in the Old Testament. That's saying something too, and it's saying something preachers really don't want to hear as they begin their studies. It's a challenging passage, and it can take us down some different trails depending on how we unfold it. And so we need to work carefully on that together today. And I I hope to build a case for the right interpretation of this narrative as we go along more than doing that just right up front. But it's initially important that we rightly link chapter 19 to chapter 18. So remember that Israel has suffered three and a half years of drought for her idolatrous violations of God's covenant as His chosen people. The prophet Elijah proposes then a contest on Mount Carmel between the pagan god Baal, whom Israel is idolatrously worshiping, and Yahweh, the true God of all creation. Remember that 450 prophets of Baal plead with Baal to consume their sacrifice with fire from the heavens. They dance wildly, working themselves into a frenzy. They begin to slash themselves until the blood flows to get Baal's attention. And it's crickets. Nothing. For half of a day. Then Elijah offers his sacrifice, saturating it with water. And fire falls from the heavens. It incinerates not only the sacrifice, but the stones on which it's offered and the earth around. Likely thousands of Israelites observing this fall on their face in fear of God. And they capture the prophets of Baal. And they are hauled down off the Mount Carmel and taken to the book Kishon. And they are slaughtered there in keeping with the covenant. Then Elijah prayed. He prayed earnestly. And the heavens burst forth with rain, penetrating the thirsty earth. It had been three and a half years without rain. And at his prayer, the rains fall. 
And then Elijah runs ahead in the power of the Lord, ahead of the chariot of Ahab, as it goes back to Jezreel, the place of the summer palace of the king, overlooking that beautiful valley. And he's, it's now raining And Elijah, running in front of that chariot, is doing so as the forerunner of the king, bringing him back to his palace at Jezreel to say, we're together. We're in this together. Now the mediatorial king between God and Israel who represents the people, and I as the prophet of God, come to Jezreel. It's the beginning of a revival. We can hardly imagine Elijah's thoughts as he prepares to pillow his weary head that long day. The prospects of Israel's revival dancing in his mind, thinking of what is now to come. Undoubtedly, his heart is thrilled to its very depths. What a glorious day. And what now will the future hold? Compelled by the fire on Mount Carmel, compelled by the rain that is falling after three and a half years of drought, Israel falling on her face before the Lord. What wonderful days are ahead. Israel has certainly been pulled from the brink of apostasy. But as they say, back at the ranch. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 1 Kings 21 and verse 26 indicates that it was Jezebel who incited, this Phoenician wife of Ahab, who incited him to the worship of Baal. And 1 Kings 18 and verse 19 reveals that Jezebel provided financial support for 950 false prophets of Baal and Asherah. So we can imagine how Jezebel took Ahab's report. What happened? Elijah did what? Jezebel worshipped a false god who was not there. And she foolishly then assumed that Yahweh was not there either. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. We cannot know why she did this. She may have been in such a rage, she simply responded rashly and foolishly, and thereby tips Elijah off as to what she's planning to do the next day. That's a possibility. Or perhaps we're to read into her threat kind of an unstated, you got 24 hours to leave Dodge. If you're not out of here by 24 hours, then you're a dead man. In any event, we know it's no vain threat. And some have taken it this way as a vain threat, like she has no power to do this. Chapter 18 and verse 13 makes it very clear that she was quite willing to kill people that identified with Yahweh. And could she do so, she would take Elijah out. This man would lead no revival in a kingdom over which she ruled. As the wife of the king, but as one very influential in the kingdom. So we see this attack as Queen Jezebel weighs in on Elijah's victory. It's not a response of repentance. It's not what seemed to be happening on Mount Carmel. And that leads to this next section, verses 3 to 8, of despair. Elijah weighs Jezebel's threat and Israel's status. And by putting it that way, I'm beginning down this line of interpretation. But I think that's what Elijah is mostly doing, is weighing at Jezebel's threat, but in doing so, he is assessing where things now stand. Israel's status. Verse 3, then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. It's here that the interpretive troubles of which I referred begin. It's never, ever fun to do this, to argue against an English translation, but I think that this is one of those very rare places 
where the evidence really demands it. Simply said, I won't go into a lot of detail, but the word, the Hebrew word translated afraid, here in verse 3, looks almost identical to the word see or understand. To see in the sense it physically, but also it's taken to see in the sense of understanding. Oh, I see what you mean. Many translations amend the Hebrew text to produce this translation of feared. But it's best for us to leave the text alone and to take it as see or understand. Did Elijah fear for his life? Yes, he certainly did. Can you fear more than one thing at once? Can you be doing more than one thing at once? That's certainly true. And I think here we get sent off. It's so easy to take it as he's scared to death of her and so he runs. But I think what that does is causes us just to miss right at the start the fact that what he's doing is assessing the status of Israel. And so I would read the word here, then he saw, in the sense of then he understood and he rose and ran for his life. He is, there is fear here. There is the running away from Jezebel who can take him out. Yes. But we will see as we go through, if you read the rest of the narrative as he's scared to death of Jezebel and is sinfully just running away from her, I think we miss a lot. And I'll try to bring that out as we carry through. I think you'll make, make sense of the, of the context that way. But that said, he comes to Beersheba, to the far south, weighing the reality of Jezebel's response and seeing, as we say, the handwriting on the wall. And, and, and imagine the stunned horror that suddenly filled Elijah's soul when he opened the email from Jezebel. His highest, grandest hopes for revival in Israel were suddenly dashed to the ground like a delicate vase landing on cement. You could not be at a greater height of spiritual joy and vitality than coming off Carmel and running to Jezreel and pillowing your head that night and saying, tomorrow is a new day of revival. And then this. And he got the picture. The fact that Ahab did not restrain Jezebel was a clear indication that Ahab would not control the situation and he would not join the revival. Rain after three and a half years. Fire from heaven consuming the rocks and the dirt, let alone the sacrifice. Israelites falling on their face in fear of the Lord, praising His name, executing justice. What hits Elijah is all these years, all these dangers, toils, and snares, and it's not going to happen. He's devastated, and despair replaces hope. So why did he flee for his life? Explicitly because of the threat of Jezebel, but implicitly he saw, he realized, no one was going to protect him. Not Ahab, not the Israelites. He saw this, he understood, and his heart was filled with despair. Elijah loved God. He knew God's power. He loved God's truth. He honored the living King of kings and Lord of lords. And anyone who does longs for the world to know this same wonder and to rejoice. And Elijah's heart suddenly felt like it weighed 400 pounds. A weariness of soul overcomes him. It's never an easy assignment to glorify God in this fallen world. And it can be a lonely fight. Well, in chapter 17, what did God do with Elijah? He hid him in Gilead, that rural, rugged area. And then he took him north, sort of behind enemy lines, to Zarephath, and he hid him there in the widow's upper room. 
Elijah is running for his life again, but let me stress the word again. He's no less faithful here to go to Beersheba than he was to go to Gilead or to Zarephath. It's just Beersheba this time. The southernmost tip of the southern kingdom of Judah. So working from Jezreel, he takes off and heads all the way to the very edge, border of Judah. Verse 4. But he himself... He's actually going to go a little further. And he went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is, is, it is enough. I've seen enough. I've had enough. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Broom trees are there in that region and they provide a little bit of shade and by the way you can pull the leaves off and put them put them together it makes a pretty good broom that's why i would guess they call the, that the tree but i've seen some of those brooms in different parts of the world they're useful it's a broom tree but out here in the desert very uh, capable tree that allowed shade for him and he goes to sleep and what does he mean there when he says, take my life away, I'm no better than my father's? He's saying something, I, me, the famed prophet of God? No, Lord, I'm no better than the bones of my ancestors, and please now let me join them. Just take me home. Lord, please, I'm done. I don't believe that the, and you, you must test yourself and discern and strive to th- to think, but I don't believe these are the words of a whimpering defeatist seeking not God's will but God's pity, as one commentator puts it. Indeed, commentators are pretty happy to pile on Elijah here, to condemn him, charging him with cowardice and self pity and distrust in God. But let's take a closer look. Yes, Elijah has come to a place of despair. There's no question about that. But if he simply wants to die, he could set up a lawn chair in the front yard and wait for Jezebel's executioner to show up. He doesn't have to leave to try to stay alive. If that's all that he's up to is, I just want to die, I have a death wish. He's a mentally unstable man now. I think what we're rather witnessing is a prophet whose heart is crushed. It's crushed by Israel's sinful rejection of God. It's discouraged in the face of the powers of darkness that have chained God's people. And he says, I've seen enough. I'm, I'm done with it. Let the desert sands bury me and the desert winds whistle my funeral dirge. To paraphrase one, I'm done, Lord. Take me out of the game. If this doesn't work, fire from heaven and rain after three and a half years, if this doesn't work, I'm done. If this is whining, complaining, self-pitying, as so many assume, what response would you expect next from God? Well, what is that response? Verse 5. Sleeping under the broom tree, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. The God who fed Elijah in Gilead is feeding him again. When God ordains a journey for his child, he always supplies all necessary provisions. Wherever that journey takes you, wherever God leads you, if he leads you there, he will provide. And he's providing here for Elijah. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So Elijah is, is buried deep behind the lines of Judah, located in an undiscoverable desert place. He's not running to Horeb some 200 miles south of there to escape Jezebel. If Jezebel stuck a toe across the border of northern Judah, she would be confronted by King Jehoshaphat's troops. What are you doing here, Jezebel? And believe me, she wouldn't have arrived incognito. She would have arrived with a a great entourage, just knowing her probably. But she's not going to come across the northern border of Judah. And King Jehoshaphat was a godly king that could be counted on to defend Elijah, not offer him up to a pagan queen. Now Elijah's at the very southern tip of that protection behind these lines. And he needs to run 200 more miles south in the desert? Now, it's the angel that provides him the food that is also initiating and authorizing the journey. Do you see that there in verse 8? End of verse 7. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And it, it's, it's not all there, but you have to say, Elijah's like, what journey? It's the angel that initiates and authorizes the journey. The angel is sending him to Horeb, the mount of God. And what is Horeb? Far Now, that's, that line is showing us from Beersheba down to Horeb or Mount Sinai. As you see on this map, it's the same, different names for the same place. Now, it doesn't take a biblical scholar to know that Mount Sinai is a pretty important mountain, a pretty important place in Israel's history. And and I would very much disagree with anybody saying he's running from Jezebel because he's gone insane. And he's just putting miles that are absolutely unnecessary to get down there. In fact, if you're going to walk from Beersheba to Mount Sinai, it's going to take you somewhere in the range of 10 days. He took 40 days. What's Elijah doing? He's wandering about the desert. He's taking his time. There's meditation that's taking place here. There's undoubtedly prayer and time with the Lord. He's he's going at one quarter the speed that would be the average person walking down that distance. God sent him here. The angel initiates and authorizes this journey. And the 40 days of the journey certainly awaken our thoughts to connections. This is the Mount of Revelation. This is the place where God disclosed His will, expressed His nature to Moses so many years earlier. It would have taken, again, Elijah much less time to get there, but these 40 days of fasting and these 40 days of wandering in the wilderness reflect Moses who fasted 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai and then went out into the wilderness with Israel for 40 years, ultimately. Elijah now is ascending that same mount where God descended and established his covenant with Israel. There's one reason that Elijah's here. It's not to stay alive from Jezebel. It's to meet with the covenant-making God of Israel. On the mount where this whole thing started, with the giving of the law to Moses. And here on that mount, God weighs Elijah's charge And he reveals his grace. And as as we work our way through these remaining verses, we'll see the significance of it being stated this way, that he weighs Elijah's charge. Verse 9. There he came, there, so he's on Mount Sinai now. He came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Another Hebrew point, forgive me, but it's actually not a cave. There's actually an article here. It's the cave. 
It doesn't make it explicit, but it certainly indicates that this is the cave where Moses stood when God met with him and his glory passed by on this very mound. What are you doing here? If you're looking at this as Elijah's lost his mind, he's manic depressive, he's wandering around in the desert hoping Jezebel doesn't find him there irrationally, then you're going to see this as a scolding. Elijah, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. God sent him here. That's not the point of the question. It's not a scolding. When we see it as a scolding, I think we're forcing a psychotherapeutic reading upon the text. This depressed, fearful, cowering, maniacal mess is being fixed by God. But this psychologized view fails to hold up. For Elijah is not irrationally running 18 times further from Jezebel than he needs to. God sent him here, point we've made. But secondly, look where Elijah is standing. He's on Mount Sinai at the cave where Moses encountered God. That should inform how we read the question. Elijah, what are you doing here? I then would take this question to be, as Elijah stands before God as the prophet prosecutor of Israel who has broken covenant with God, shattered the covenant inaugurated in this very place, that God is saying essentially, state your business before the court, Elijah. I reign on heaven's throne. Why are you here? What is your business, the judge says. This question will be repeated. That's not because two times answered the same way Elijah is both times whining and complaining. But rather, we have here, in a sense, the grand jury. Is there a case? Why are you here? What is your business, Elijah? What has brought you here? What is your prosecutorial complaint? That, I think, is the meaning. State your business. Verse 10, he does. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I'm freaked out by Jezebel. Well, yeah, that's going on, but that's not why he's here. I'm here for this reason. I've been jealous for you, Lord. For the people of Israel have forgotten your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Seeking his life, Jezebel seeking his life, is a real thing. It's just one aspect of the larger picture that Israel is violating the covenant, rejecting God, walking away from him. Here's his case as prosecutor. What does God say? It's not Elijah, knock it off, get back up to your duties, quit whining and complaining. Verse 11, God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. We cannot miss the linkage there. The glory of God passed by Moses, apparently at this very cave. And now the glory of the Lord passes by Elijah. Verse 11 And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a soft voice. And that voice we hear in verse 13. Now, why these physical elements? At times, these elements demonstrate God's coming in power and judgment. And the power of these three forces shook the mountain, demonstrating God's might. But God reveals Himself to Elijah here in a quiet voice, a voice that speaks in verse 13. So there's a lot that could go into the interpretation of what's happening here. But Elijah is not being instructed here to chill out and treat pagans a little more nicely. 
Many read it this way. God doesn't want bombast. He wants a still, small, gracious voice. Well, sometimes he does. But that's not the point here. God reveals to Elijah that the greater power resides in God's Word. His Word that powerfully demonstrates who He is and transforms His people. He does not rely on powerful demonstrations of force. Can He wield them? Yes. Does He? Yes. I mean, He just consumed the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. He came in fire. But not here. It's the Word that is all important. Think about it. I want to please be gracious to me as I say this and understand the Carmel was meaningless. This great fireball from God came down to say that He is alive. He is the only true God. He is there. Everybody saw that He was there. And it meant nothing. Not to Israel. It confirmed to the true believers that He is there what they already knew, but when it came to convincing people to follow the Lord, it didn't do anything. Again, I realize a lot of things it did do. But it seems rather to me that God is saying it is the revelation of His Word that is all-powerful. It does not need to come with miracle and grand demonstration that word itself is the power of God. So I speak to you here. And it is this word that delivers to us the gospel of Christ. The miracles that Jesus performed, the miracles of the early church, the miracles that we read of in the Old Testament are real, historical, vital confirmation of the message. But people will not be saved by witnessing miracles. There were people that knew Jesus rose from the dead. They stared into the face of the greatest miracle conceivable, and they rejected him. It is the word of the Lord that transforms the heart, and may we remember that as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'd love for fire to come down and prove to everybody that God is God, but what will save is that gentle word of truth. That the New Testament pictures as seed. I mean, I, I, I put a lot of seed in my yard. It doesn't seem to obey me or listen. It doesn't seem to work very often, but I keep dropping seed down there. I do not go out there and slam it into the earth. You just drop it. Let it fall where it falls. This still, small voice of the truth and the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And I believe that's part of what Elijah is learning here. Now, at verse 14, God repeats the question that he asked in verse 9. So it is the Word of God that is key here. He's made that point clear as Elijah has come with his prosecution against Israel. Now God repeats the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again, this isn't scolding like, yeah, you answered wrongly. Elijah's going to answer exactly the same way again. I think we've gotten out of grand jury, and now he's saying, come with your formal complaint. I stand as the judge of the universe. What is your business, Elijah? Here it is, verse 14. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forgotten your covenant. Underline it. Think in it. That's what's key. They've forgotten your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Does God answer, quit the pity party, Elijah. Go back to your duties. Here I'll quote Davis. 
It's a lot of fun, so we decided to do it. But I love how he puts this. He says, my hunch is that most interpreters don't take Elijah's words in verse 14 seriously because they look upon him as a psychological basket case who obviously can't assess matters in their true colors. Why then would God give a rational response to a neurotic like Elijah? But if for once interpreters would take off their clinical white coats and listen to Elijah's charges, they ought to see that Yahweh in his response concurs with the prophet. He agrees. The judge decides for the prosecution. But amateur psychotherapists die hard. I had to just throw that in there. Just way too much fun. But back to the serious work here. God agrees with Elijah, deciding for the prosecution. Notice verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Okay, if it stopped there, you might say, God's saying, get back to your work. That's not what he's saying. I mean, he is saying that, but that's not all that he's saying. Notice it again. Get, go to the wilderness of Damascus, way back up north. And when you arrive... You shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. That's deciding for the prosecution. Elijah is right. And God will, in keeping with the covenant, judge Israel for her sin. Who's Hazael? Hazael, the future king of Assyria, Syria, is going to wreak destruction on large numbers of Israelite towns. The judgment, the punishment, the curse of the covenant will be delivered by this foreign king. I want you to go anoint him. And from within Israel, who's Jehu? Jehu will become king of Israel, that northern kingdom of the people of God. And he will do what? He's going to wipe out Ahab's lineage. Take it completely out. It ends. He is going to orchestrate Jezebel's violent death. Jehu is going to wipe out the worship of Baal in Israel through a violent purge. This is not God chiding Elijah for being so self-protective and wimpy. He's saying... I decide for the prosecution. I will judge this nation. Elisha, the prophet, will wield what? He'll not wield the sword of Hatziel and Jehu, the violent kings that will take out many, many people and put an end to the worship of Baal. But he will wield that quiet word of the Lord in both judgment and blessing to those who trust the words of the Lord. Just a quick side note, these anointings are in some cases figurative. We use that too. We say we, we crown a new champion. doesn't mean we drop a crown on their head. It's just figurative. So some people are like, well, he never actually anoints them. It's just figurative. But also, he's dead before the, the king is anointed, before Jehu is anointed. But that is done through Elisha. So it's, it's seen as a team effort here, not that, Ahab, or that Elijah will specifically himself pull this off. But again, God decides for the prosecution. And he says, in a sense, I've got this. I've got this, Elijah. You will go. Hazael will become king. Jehu will become king. And Elisha will become the prophet who takes your place. I'll keep working in a different way. But what happened on Carmel 
is no loss. Keep going, verse 18. And here I do think he, in a sense, counsels, corrects Elijah. Let's, let's go back, Elijah. I mean, you, you've won the case. I've decided for you as the prosecutor, but in the development of your case, you keep speaking of yourself as the only one. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Kissing the statues of Baal was the common practice. Elijah must remember, as must we, that God always has a remnant. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. No matter how discouraged we may get in our labors for Christ, we must never lose sight of the truth that the people of God exist, will exist, and will persevere to the end. God will sovereignly see to it. No matter how few we are, no matter how many turn in different directions, there will always be a righteous remnant. Satan cannot snuff out the church. And we as Christians should walk around as the followers of Christ with a spirit that seems to indicate as much. Elijah must see that he is not alone. What he must now do is to build up that remnant and add to it through the labors that he makes for God. And so in verse 19, Elijah returns to his ministry, renewed, refreshed, reminded that a sovereign God rules history from heaven's throne. He doesn't have to depend on caramel and rain. Now on that day, as he starts to journey back his nearly 300 miles north, Ahab and Jezebel rule from Jezreel and Samaria. The worship of Baal held sway over the nation. But God says, rest Elijah, I've got this. I really do. Ahab and Jezebel are a bitter disappointment to you. Indeed, they threaten your life. They are no problem to me. I've got this, Elijah. It's time to lift your chin. I'm not taking you home yet. Still grooming the horses, son. But for now, I've got work for you to do. It's time to head north. So let's return to the question. What discourages you most deeply and most often? What is it that brings you to think, I'm ready to go. What vexes your soul and even fills it with despair? What vexed Elijah was the nation's sin. It's failure to exalt God as God. What brought Elijah to the brink of despair was not financial woes or reputation issues or illness or career failure or the loss of a friend or anything of the like. What discouraged the heart of Elijah was the vile disobedience of his nation. a culture in which he ministered, a people he sought to reach, and the wickedness and the godlessness of it all discouraged his heart. What discouraged his heart was that God's glory and greatness and goodness was not seen and treasured. He longed for revival, but its absence grieved his soul. And in this sense, he really reflected, as we learned this morning, like the moon reflecting the sun. The words of Jesus, he prayed over Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? 
Elijah loved God. He knew God's power. He loved God's truth. He honored the living King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he longed for revival and it weighed heavily upon him when that revival did not come. And I believe, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the maturity of our faith is not marked then by how harsh and critical how judgmental and flabbergasted we can get over the evils of our culture. Christian maturity is marked by the weight of disappointment that we suffer when we realize that Christ is not seen as glorious. He's not honored in this fallen world. It should fill us with a glorified despair that people reject the counsel of God at their own harm and that Jesus is not seen for who he is this should be at the heart of our despair Christian maturity marked by the disappointment we suffer that Christ is not seen and this leads where The right channeling of this discouragement leads to no stagnant backwater. It doesn't even lead us back to an understanding again of the old covenant, but rather to the new. The right channeling of this despair is not to badmouth the world, not to mock its folly, but to build up the remnant of God's people through the proclamation of the gospel to continue to add to that remnant and through the proclamation of that basic word of God to build up the people of God. The answer is to take the sorrow of heart that we feel for a world hardened against the gospel and to pray with God, to plead with God for revival. The course of this world, the course this world is on, the course this nation is on will never be reversed by political action or the emergence of some rescuer or other. Our only hope is revival. A work of the Spirit of God using the simple Word of God to transform the heart. We've got no other hope. That the lost would see the reality of judgment to the place where it led them even figuratively, if not literally, to fall on their faces in the fear of God. We cannot bring that about any other way than through the Word of God illumined by the Spirit of God. That we would see the lost find hope in Christ crucified and risen. That His death did indeed pay the penalty of my sin for the forgiveness of my sin. And I can be reconciled to God for eternity. Not try to run my own universe, but to submit to the God who actually does run the universe. Only a Spirit-sent revival of God will lead any people to that conclusion. So, Eden Baptist Church, let's join those followers of Christ. This is a direct action point. May we join those followers of Christ who pray regularly and fervently with longing expectation for revival. That the glory of God would be seen. That conviction would come. That Christ would be glorified in this world for the joy of His people to the ends of the earth. And just a word to us as Christian servants and along those lines, it's, it's not often easy laboring for God and for truth in a fallen world. We can easily come to the place where we wonder if we've accomplished anything good at all, anything lasting whatsoever. Even a situation like Carmel and rain after three and a half years can look really cheap when you realize not much has happened. Maybe nothing And we may get to that point where we just say as God's people, just take me home. I'm done. I've seen enough. In an excruciating, difficult way. This is where our Savior came on the night of His betrayal. 
if it is possible, take this cup from me. Remove me now. And he didn't leave. He wasn't delivered. He was offered up as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin. And as he stood that ground in prayer, angels came and ministered to him in a way similar, certainly greater, than they ministered to Elijah in his wilderness moment. And so the new covenant was inaugurated with blood. So let us take heart in a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning and who uses us for His glories in ways that we cannot understand. Press on, follower of Christ. This is what we learn in chapter 19. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint. And when we do faint, there is a God of grace who lifts us up, puts us on our feet, draws us back into the fray, and gives us a strength that comes from his throne and nowhere else. Let's turn to him in prayer. I pray, Father, now as we lift our prayers of intercession to you in behalf of this congregation, build up the weary, strengthen those whose battle seems to be getting nowhere. Whatever particular journey you have led each of us on, Father, we look around and we see a world that is bent against you and we can get really weak shoulders and weak knees. But I pray that you'd strengthen us through the Spirit of God I pray that we would persevere and continue on, that we would trust your ways and trust your word as we build up the remnant of faith. Lord, bring revival to this nation, to the nations of this world. We would love to see that in our area, in the churches that surround us, in the nation as a whole, and in the nations of this world. We long for revival, and I pray that you would give us the despair of heart, the God-glorifying despair that pleads that this world would see your glory for what it truly is. We know someday it will, and that in that will come great judgment. But I pray, Father, for the remnant, for those of us who know Christ, and for those who you will bring into that remnant, that we will forever rejoice that Christ has come to deliver His people through a new covenant calling us to trust and hope in You. We cling to this saving grace and pray that You would equip us for the journey ahead wherever that takes each one of us. May we trust You and not grow weary in well-doing.